Good morning, brethren. <clears throat> it's good to be with you all. And we look forward to having our fellowship times at uh, the Parsonage uh, in the next several weeks. And like uh, we indicated last time, if if we somehow have missed anyone, please let us know. We want to be able to have everyone uh, over over the next few weeks to uh, have a time of fellowship, enjoy a meal, and uh, sing some psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs as unto the Lord. The scripture reading that was just read, I want to repeat before we go to the Lord in prayer. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. Thou, O Lord, wilt keep them. Thou wilt preserve him from this generation forever. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Precious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the riches of this psalm. And we are struck by David's cry out to you. When he cries for help, saying that the godly man ceases to be and that the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. Lord, we do live in a fallen world. It is true today as it was in David's time. And we confess and acknowledge, Lord, that we are surrounded by many who speak falsehood. They don't even think twice about lying. Men engage in flattery for the sake of gaining advantage. Many speak from a double heart, from the conflicts that rage within their own souls. And they boast with our tongues, we will prevail, blasphemously declaring who is Lord over us. Lord, this is the world in which we live. But we're so thankful, Lord, that your words are pure. And that you, Lord, will in fact keep your every word, your every promise. Lord, grant us grace to trust you for your every promise, your every provision in your word. Grant us grace to navigate through this life knowing that you have placed us on the narrow pathway that has been forged and established by means of your word. Broad is the way that leads to hell, but it is your narrow pathway of truth that you have placed us on. And we thank you for that. We do pray for daily grace to walk in that pathway. Keep us from straying to the left or to the right. Lord, make us better soldiers. 
May we on a daily basis put on the belt of truth, taking up in our hands the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Lord, we ask in view of what we have been studying in the Scriptures that you would make us, as a church, the poema of God, the workmanship of your hands. That we as individuals would be made the poema of God, your workmanship. May we individually and corporately as your people live for your glory, delighting in the privilege and pleasure of doing so, knowing, Lord, that you are jealous for your glory and that we have this remarkable privilege, Lord, of being your servants who serve as unto your glory. May this indeed be our chief end, our greatest joy each and every day. Lord, we ask that you would increase our witness to this community. That you would mortify within us the fear of man. Our infatuation with worldly wisdom to the extent that we ever have it. And the prevailing temptation of engaging in subjectivism, Lord, where we make our own thoughts, opinions, and ideas more important than what you have revealed in your word. Lord, we confess this morning that we, though redeemed, struggle daily and battle daily against sin. Father, we confess that before you redeemed us, there was no battle. There was no contest. We were the slaves of sin, and Lord, all that we did was sin, gladly and joyfully partaking in wickedness. But only by your sovereign grace, Lord, have we been snatched out of this doom of our death march. For we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we formerly walked. But now, Lord, we have a new walk. A walk that has been established by your divine grace. And it is a walk that entails a battle against sin daily. It is a battle of the flesh against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Oh Lord, we pray for grace to submit to the spirit daily. And when we do stumble and fall in sin, may we flee to your throne of grace and mercy, confessing our sin remembering that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin. O Lord, mortify within our hearts our own pride, our arrogance, selfishness. May we be more like Christ, considering the needs of others as being more important than our own. May we be like Christ, such that we live our lives as servants taking up the cross daily and following after Jesus. And Father, I pray that that we by grace would cling to nothing but your word. May we be, as the psalmist confessed, 
a people who cling to nothing but your word, if thy law had not been my delight, says the psalmist, I would have perished in my affliction. Lord, we pray for grace that we would trust in you with all of our heart, not leaning on our own understanding, knowing and understanding that our understanding is fraught with corruption. But your wisdom from above is pure. And we're so thankful for that. Your words are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. Father, we continue to pray and petition you that you would bring about a great awakening in this community and this nation and throughout the world. Lord, we plead with you that you would accomplish the very work that human flesh cannot achieve. That you would open the eyes and the hearts of many, that they would see their need for Christ, that they would see and understand their own sin and condemnation and cry out to the Savior for salvation. With this, Lord, we ask that you would revive your people, that you would revive within us a work of the Spirit, Revive your church throughout this nation and the world. May your people grow in boldness in speaking of your glory, of your majestic and eternal authority, of your sovereign purview over all of creation. Lord, it is for this purpose that we have been redeemed, that we would be your ambassadors. Lord, in our time together here this morning, we pray that we would be quick to hear your word. Being slow to speak and slow to anger, may we be ready to receive your word. And not only, Lord, would we be a people who hear your word with eagerness, we pray for grace to be doers of your word. So we pray in this time of the hearing of the scriptures and the time of preaching, may we all sit at the feet of Jesus and receive what he has for us. In our time of fellowship after the services, Lord, may we endeavor to stimulate one another to loving good deeds, to encourage one another, to upbuild one another in our most holy faith. Lord, may we endeavor to serve one another in the fear and reverence of our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing and understanding, Lord, that we stand beneath his ultimate authority in all things. Lord, we petition that everything that is said and done here this morning, that it would render unto you the glory that is due to your name. For we confess that you are are a jealous God. Your name is jealous. And you are rightly jealous for your glory. Thank you that you have redeemed us such that we would live for your glory and that this would be our great joy and chief end. Lord, all these prayers and petitions we offer up to you with hearts of gladness and joy in our Savior. 
All this we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Would the ushers please come forward for the offering, please. Sovereign Grace Bible Church. It's a great name. The last several weeks we've been talking about the words sovereign and grace. And so we came to this conclusion of examining God's work of grace in our salvation and his continued work of grace in our sanctification focusing quite a bit on Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. It's important that we talk about the fact that God's grace is sufficient for salvation, but then not stop there because the Bible repeatedly teaches us that not only is his grace there for us in our redemption, but it continues on in our sanctification such that now, by the grace of God, we are the poema of God, the workmanship of God, who were created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should do what? Sit around and talk about them? No, he says that we should walk in them. We've been given a new life, and God has brought us across this bridge of redemption so that we would come out on the other end of this, walking in a new pathway, in a new walk, one that is diametrically opposed to our former walk, which Paul very fully described in Ephesians chapter 2, at the beginning of the chapter, saying that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He says, in which you formerly walked. So by the time he gets to this idea of, in verse 10, of talking about this new walk that God has ordained, a walk of good works, we see that God has put us on an entirely new and different path. And this is why we took the time, last time, to consult James chapter 2, because too many times people have acted like as if Paul and James are somehow saying something different, when really they're not. 
Paul has just indicated the fact that we're saved for good works and that we should walk in them, and this is what God has ordained. It's essentially what James is saying in James chapter 2. Only in James chapter 2, he is asking the question, if you come across a person, they say that they have faith, but they don't have any fruit, what is that, he's asking? Can that faith save him? What's his conclusion? His conclusion comes in verse 26 where he says, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. In other words, if you perform an x-ray on this individual, and if you could open up their, their chest cavity and look into them spiritually and examine who they really are, not just what they're saying, but examine who they really are on the inside, their lack of Fruit, their lack of works demonstrates the fact that this is just words for them. It's not real. It's not genuine. And so he gives us the test case of the individual who sees a brother or sister in need, and instead of actually doing something about it, he just says, well, be warm and be filled. James says that's not fruit. Those are just words, just like you're saying that you're a believer. You're not actually doing anything for your brother or sister in Christ whom you are commanded to love. And then he moves on from that negative example to the example of Abraham. Abraham, who was a believer in God, and we see the testing of his faith, the vindication of his faith when he offered up Isaac as unto God. And it is by that work that his faith was, we would say, vindicated. By the way, this word uh, dikaio is used to speak of not just our positional justification before God, but it's also used to speak of this idea of vindication, public vindication, where you see that an individual's profession actually comports with their actions. Much like when Jesus says that Wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. That's the idea there. Well, Abraham was vindicated by virtue of his obedience to God. James is not saying that Abraham was justified before God in terms of being uh, saved. What he's saying is, is that Abraham, who was a believer, gave demonstration of or evidence of that faith when he obeyed God by offering up Isaac. Fruit and obedience is important. It's why we were saved. Again, we're not saved to sit. We're saved to serve. To this end, that in the ages to come, he, God, might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God is showcasing his mercy and grace in and through his people as we follow him and serve him and render fruit for him. So our confession to the world is, is that we have been saved and are continuing to be sanctified by God's sovereign grace. So we're sovereign grace, Bible, church. Now we're under the word Bible. Well, it's kind of self-evident that we are are about the Bible. I've been preaching from no other book. I don't have any other book to preach from. Um, I wouldn't be here if I thought I did. You wouldn't have invited me if I thought I had another book to preach from. 
sola scriptura is a, a very important confession. The reformers spoke of sola scriptura because they understood that we have no other foundation of authority apart from God's word. And this is why this is then another important component of our name, one that is worthy of serious examination and consideration. Now, before we enter into this subject, I'd like to bring you back to that moment where we began with the subject of the jealousy of God. First two sermons I preached here was on the subject of the jealousy of God, and we talked about the fact that God is jealous for his glory. This is his priority, is that he would showcase his glory and receive glory from his creation, and especially us as his workmanship. To introduce that theme, we went to the prayer of our Savior in John 17. Because what's remarkable about John 17 is that our Savior speaks repeatedly about the importance of God's word. In John 17, the priority of the glory of God is self-evident. He says at the beginning of that prayer, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. So we talked about how that is the principal priority that Christ had in his prayer, but we need to read further into the prayer in order to understand that Jesus also prioritizes for us the word so that we ourselves as his people would be sanctified. And by the way, this is how we give glory to God. It is by being refined and cleansed and sanctified by his word. There's no other way in which and by which these things can be achieved. Look with me at what he says in in chapter 17 of, of the gospel of John. And verse 6, Jesus said, I manifested thy name to the men whom thou gavest me, and they have kept thy word. Then verse 8, the words which thou gavest me, I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from thee, and they believed that thou didst send me. Then, in verses 13 through 17, notice what Jesus says about the priority and the importance of the word. He says, but now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world." I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And then he says this, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then he says something else about the importance of the word. In verse 20, he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. When he says their word, he's not talking about the machinations and musings of the apostles that they would subjectively have on their own. They were apostles. 
That word apostello means sent one. And they were sent not to speak their own ideas or their own word, but they were sent divinely by the power of Christ and by the authority of Christ to speak his word. Their words were his words, and they bore the exact authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when he prays in verse 20, for those who believe in him through their word, he's praying for us. He's praying for the church generationally down the ages who have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ through the ministry of the word as it was propagated and continued through the apostles. You notice and see the centrality and the importance of the word of God throughout this prayer. It's everywhere. And by the way, what a remarkable juxtaposition it is that Jesus prayed to the Father that we would have his joy made full in ourselves. And then, he, and then he mentions the fact that having received the word of God, the world now does what? They really like us. I'm so happy because the world likes me so much. That's not what he says. We've received his word, and what is the result of this? Now that we stand with Jesus and for him on his behalf as his re- representatives, the world now hates us because they hated him. And crucified him. By the way, when John says in 1 John, do not be surprised when the world hates you. Remember that? That's a command. That's not a quaint suggestion. It's not a, hey, I got an idea for you. He's commanding us. He's saying, don't you dare be surprised. You have no right or license to be surprised. Jesus told us, the Lord taught us, that just as much as they hated him, they're going to hate us. And as he was one who spoke forth the word of God as being God in the flesh, we, as we bear his word and proclaim it, will in fact be hated by the world. And yet in the midst of all this, Jesus prays that we would have his joy. I don't like being hated by people. I really don't. In fact, by nature, I am a people pleaser. I could tell you stories about me as a young man. I just always wanted to make peace with anybody and everybody, and I would compromise in all sorts of ways in order for everybody just to get along. That's what I am by fleshly nature. None of us like to be disliked or hated by anyone. But if we're going to be sober-minded about this reality of walking the narrow pathways we follow Jesus Christ, we have to understand that we must not be surprised when the world hates us. And if we're going to stand for the word of God, this is the result that is going to come. Even persecution against the church, which the ages of history and church history has revealed that this is the pattern that we have seen time and time again. Brethren, God has called us to be soldiers in his army. He's given us the belt of truth. He's given us the sword of the Spirit. We're to march on, having our feet shod with the gospel of peace, proclaiming his message, carrying forth the word of Christ, and telling the nations how it is that they are doomed without Christ and that they can be saved by Christ if they place their faith and trust in him. 
We are Sovereign Grace Bible Church. Our confession is that we have no other authority whatsoever, period. We stand on the word of God alone. And I want to take the time to introduce this subject. I'm guessing this will take four weeks. I'm not going to make any promises. I've been kind of feeling my way through this. Um, I, uh, I think I gave up predicting how long I'll ever take on sermons and, and messages. When I started the book of Hebrews, I was doing that at the beginning and predicting how long it was going to take even to go through the first chapter. And then after about midway through, I just said, I'm giving up on this because uh, I'll just let the text say what it says, and I'm going to follow that trail, and however long it takes, that's how long it takes. That's how I roll, if you know what I mean. But, but brethren, to introduce this subject, I want us to begin with this important question of, and this important matter, of the purity and veracity of God's Word. And I'm picking my words carefully because I'm thinking about and I have in mind what the scriptures teach about the word. The word speaks to this issue of the purity of the word and therefore its veracity. By the way, those things, those two things go together. The fact that God's word is pure means it is truthful. It is not fraught with corruption and error. It's not 98% true. 99% true, it is 100% true, as God himself is truth. That's a key principle and idea, and we're going to spend some time talking about that here this morning. Another thing we're going to address here this morning, and we're not going to be finished, by the way, with any of these subjects just in one morning, but the next thing we need to consider is the supremacy of God's word. The supremacy of God's word. There are many voices and many claims of truth in this world. And by the way, have you had a conversation with somebody recently where they start talking about my truth? Well, you don't understand my truth. People talk subjectively. They're they're slaves of subjectivism in our modern culture. It's not new. But people talk about their truth as if they can somehow generate their own reality. And they want you to conform to their own universe of reality and veracity. And the reality is, is that we don't make truth. And we, by nature, as sinful people, are not truth tellers. But God's word is supreme over all other words ever uttered by men. We've got to get that straight. By the way, that point is really the implication of the fact that God's word is pure and therefore absolutely true. All these things tie and connect together. Finally, we'll just talk about some of the implications of these things. Coming back to this idea of the fact that when Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in thy truth, thy word is truth. That helps us to understand that there's no other way, there's no other pathway of sanctification except through and by God's word. We're not going to say all that's needed to be said about that here this morning, but let's begin talking about the idea of the purity and the veracity of God's word. When Jesus says in John 17, 17, sanctify them in thy truth, thy word is truth. Literally in the Greek, he would read it this way. 
It kind of sounds funny when you just read it word for word in a strict translational sense. The word, the of you, truth is. He repeats the article, reminding us and showing us that God's truth is come, it comes exclusively from his word. In other words, his word is absolute truth. There, there's no sense in which God's word is anything but truth. He uses what we would call the monadic article, and by the context of the prayer itself, this is inferred and obvious from the context of the prayer. What is a monadic article? Well, when we talk about the God and creator of the heavens and the earth, what are we saying? We're saying that he's not a God among other gods as if there were other gods, what we're saying is that he, monadically or singularly, is God. There, there are no other gods. There might be idols and men who claim that there are other gods, but he is, the, he is God alone. And he stands alone in that identity. The monadic article is oftentimes used with reference to God. In fact, at the beginning of the prayer, Jesus says, Even as you gave him authority, the Son, over all flesh that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And then he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. Underscore the word only. That is the word monon, monon. Only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In other words, there is only one God the Father and only one Messiah whom he has sent. That's it. There are not multiple pathways to heaven. I don't know if you saw it. You probably, I'm assuming you may have. Years ago, Joel Osteen was interviewed by Larry King. And a caller called in and asked Joel Osteen with reference to, I think they were talking about Muslims and whether or not Muslims are going to go to heaven. And the individual who called in brought up the text of John 14, 6, where Jesus says, what, I am the way, and notice the article, the re repeated article, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Joel Osteen just hemmed and hawed and had no definitive answer. He did not and could not say that Muslims are not going to heaven based upon that text. What a charlatan. Jesus says nobody's coming to heaven but by him, but through him. That's it. There's only one way. There's only one truth. There's only one source of life. This is the monadic sense of what we're talking about. God alone is God. Jesus alone is the Messiah. He alone is the truth. And what God has supplied in his word stands alone as truth. Job was right to say when he said in Job 28, verses 12 and 13, where can wisdom be found and where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. Look all over planet Earth, in other words. Search as far and wide as you can. There is not truth or understanding in this world among men. Because men do not produce truth. 
They are not sources of truth. They are fraught with sin and corruption. Calvin quantifies this idea of the monadic article in John 17, 17, where he says, Christ expressly says that the truth by which God sanctifies his sons is not to be found anywhere else than in the word. And he's right to say that. And brethren, we're called to be a people who are sanctified and to bear fruit for his name's sake. And we have to understand that this comes only by God's word, which is pure and true completely. You know, in James chapter 3, he gives a remarkable dichotomy and description of wisdom. Remember when he talks about the wisdom that is from above versus the wisdom that is from below. The wisdom that is from below, he says, is earthly, natural, and demonic. That's kind of what Job was just saying. You take the wisdom of man, and what do you get? You get that which is earthly, natural, and demonic. The contrast that he establishes then is to speak of the wisdom that is from above, and he says this, the wisdom from above, that is from God, is first pure. Then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. Every one of those descriptors really is a description of the very attributes and nature of God himself. But notice this, and notice the order in which he describes the wisdom that is from above. This is James 3.17, by the way. In James 3.17, James says this, The wisdom from above is first, and here's the word proton, Proton, first, pure, hagne. Then he says, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. Everything else on the list exists there because of what he states first. God's word, in other words, is peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy because it is first and foremost pure. That's not my argument. That's James' argument. When he uses the word proton, proton hagne, it is first of all pure. A.T. Robertson points out the fact that that word proton first speaks of something that is first in rank. When Jesus talked about the foremost commandment, he used that same word. Of all the commandments in the Old Testament, he called the commandment of love proton. It is first. It has to be first because if you are not laboring as under the Lord out of a heart of love, then it is nothing but dead works. Fleshly, self-interested works. Love for God and love for man, the foremost commandment, is foremost. It has to be. Because once you strip love out of your obedience... 
It is nothing but a dry and cold mechanism. So it is here when James says that the wisdom from above is first pure. In fact, by the way, the intensification of what he's saying here is actually underscored when he says, and some translations have the the expression, the wisdom from above is first, and then he uses the word indeed. The Greek word men is added to this to say, basically, this is a sure and real deal here. If you were going to consider the wisdom that is from above, you have to understand that the first order of things is its purity, its purity, its holiness. It is not fraught with error. It is not fraught with corruption. It is not like the words of men, the words and wisdom that come from below that which is earthly, natural, and demonic. And that word hagnos, purer, comes from the root word hagios, as, again, A.T. Robertson and others have pointed out, which simply means holy. God is holy. His wisdom, therefore, is holy. Brethren, when we talk about the infallibility of Scripture, this is exactly what we're saying. We're saying that God's wisdom from above does not contain error. It is therefore a reflection of his own nature and character by virtue of the fact that he himself is holy. Therefore, unsurprisingly, his word is holy. Before Isaiah was commissioned to go out and speak as a prophet of the Lord, he was given a vision of the Almighty. And what did he see? He saw the angels singing and declaring what? Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God is many things and his attributes are beautiful and wonderful. But we must first understand that he is holy which means he is very much unlike us. He is separate from us in a way that we don't even understand. What James is saying is not that much different from what we just read in Psalm 12. The wisdom that is from above is, first of all, pure. Well, what did we read in Psalm 12 and verse 6? The words of the Lord are what? Pure words. As silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. That word pure here in in the Hebrew is the word tahor, which speaks of the idea of ceremonial purity. In Exodus, it's used 27 times with reference to the construction of the tabernacle, with reference to the golden ornamentation and the instruments of silver. All of them were made in such a way that all their dross was burned out and they were consecrated as unto the Lord for service unto him. In In Leviticus, this word tahor is also used some 20 times again to depict things that are either clean or unclean, pure or impure. You know, brethren, the good news is is that the Word of God is not mostly pure. It's not very, very pure. It is absolutely pure. 
Why? Because the psalmist says in Psalm 12, it has been refined as silver tried in a furnace on the earth. This is the word zaraf, which speaks of the idea of smelting fine metals, whether silver or or gold. Again, the idea of burning off the dross and the impurities of the metals in order to have nothing but a pure and refined metal at the end. And the fact that it's refined seven times, the word, the, the number seven speaks in the realm of numerology. It speaks of the idea of completion. Here again is an affirmation of the completion and perfection of God's word. The number seven factors in repeatedly in scripture to speak of the idea of completion and perfection. The week God created with the Sabbath rest at the end, the seventh day denoting the completion of God's work of creation. In the book of Revelation, we read about the completion of God's redemption and his judgment of the living and the dead. And so we read about the seven churches, and Christ is the, in the, in the seven epistles of the seven churches, Christ is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among these seven golden lampstands. There are the seven seal judgments, the seven trumpet judgments, the seven bowl judgments. All of this speaks of the idea of God's completion, both of the redemption of his own and the judgment of the lost, such that he can declare when it's all done, it is finished. The psalmist, David, is saying, God's word is pure. (laughs) It's complete. It's whole. It's not lacking anything. And it is not like the words of men, which are fraught with corruption. God's word does not need amendments, additions, modifications, and it certainly doesn't need human contribution. This is why the reformers oftentimes refer to Scripture as holy writ. Holy writ. That's a good descriptor of the Word of God because the Word of God says of itself that it is holy, it is pure, just as God himself is holy and pure. Jeremiah 23 and verse 9 refers to God's Word as being holy. In Romans 1-2, Paul refers to the holy Scriptures. In 2 Timothy 3-15, Paul talks of the sacred writings. We cannot, you cannot separate the nature of God and his holiness from his word because his word is an expression of his, of himself, of his own glory and his own nature. The Puritan John Howe said this. He said, this may be said to be a transcend, transcendental attribute that as it were runs through the rest, that is God's holiness, and casts luster upon all of God's attributes. It is the attribute of attributes. God's holiness, his purity. And so it is the case with his word that it is holy. But then I, again, I, I want to underscore what we're talking about here. What James is talking about, what David is talking about in Psalm 12 What we see in Scripture repeatedly is this idea of understanding that when we come to God's Word, we are coming to that which God has given to us in order to reveal His own nature and character, the principle which 
the principle of which is, as James says, first and foremost, his purity, his holiness. Any book that you ever read by any human author, you cannot say this of. You cannot pick up a a book authored by a human being and say, this is holy. (laughs) It might be good, and it might be very, very highly reflective of the Scriptures, but it doesn't bear the perfection of God's Word. It never could. And so Stephen Charnock is right when he says this, and this is a long quote, but listen carefully to what he says. God is oftener styled holy than almighty and set forth by this part of his dignity more than by any other, speaking of his holiness. This is more fixed on as an epithet to his name than any other. You never find it expressed his mighty name or his wise name, but his great name and most of all his holy name. This is the greatest title of honor. In this latter doth the majesty and venerableness of his name appear. As it, holiness seems to challenge an excellency above all his other perfections, so it is the glory of all the rest. As it is the glory of the Godhead, so it is the glory of every perfection in the Godhead. As his power is the strength of them, so his holiness is the beauty of them. As all would be weak without almightiness to back them, so all would be uncomely without holiness to adorn them. Should this be sullied, all the rest would lose their honor, as at the same instant the sun should lose its light. It would lose its heat, its strength, its generative and quickening virtue. As sincerity is the luster of every grace in a Christian, so is purity the splendor of every attribute in the Godhead. His justice is a holy justice. His wisdom, a holy wisdom. His power, a holy arm, Psalm 98.1. His truth or promise, a holy promise, Psalm 105 and verse 42. His name, which signifies all his attributes in conjunction, is holy. James says, the first thing I want you to think about regarding God's wisdom from above is that it is proton, first of all. It is pure. He is pure. And what he has supplied, therefore, is pure. And so Jesus prayed. Hear me when I say, Jesus prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. How are we to be cleansed, sanctified, made pure in our thoughts, our ideas? By the word of God alone. There is no other instrument given to us than the scriptures as taught to us by the pedagogy of the Holy Spirit. This is the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. Brethren, I believe that this is so crucial. And by the way, as I'm sharing these things with you, I know that you believe these things. 
But I do believe that even among very solid and mature believers, we all need to encourage one another in these things so that we not shrink back from the principles that we're looking at. It's very easy for us in our minds to degrade in our understanding of what we're handling when we hold the the scriptures. But we have to understand the pathway of sanctification goes by means of this word that God has given to us. The moment that we imagine that there is some other means by which we can be sanctified is a dangerous day in our lives. We need to encourage one another, stimulate one another to the love and good deeds of remembering that we're sanctified by means of God's word, his holy and pure word. This then brings us to another subject, another very important subject, and that is the supremacy of God's word. Considering what Jesus prays in John 17, what James says in James 3, when he talks about the difference between the wisdom that is from above versus the wisdom below, which, by the way, again, is a very obvious comparison. He's saying, you know what? What do you get from the world? Well, that which is earthly, natural, and demonic. What do you get from the Lord from above? You get that which is pure, that which is holy. There isn't a greater contrast that that you could ever consider Other than that, God's holiness versus the demonic reality of human wisdom. And even even Psalm 12, in addition to James 3, Psalm 12 is again a message of contrasts. You have the pure words of the Lord which are refined in in a furnace on the earth seven times like silver, Versus the words of men and the boasts of men. Again, David cries out to the Lord in view of the ungodly and how it is that they seem to prevail in this world. They speak falsehood, he says. They speak falsehood. Men don't think anything about, and they don't really uh, second-guess themselves, about this matter of lying. They speak falsehood to one another with flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. Jude talks about how it is that men use flattery in order to gain an advantage. Because out of a double heart, out of a conflicted heart, they're not being sincere as they speak to you. This is what you get with the natural man. What's going to happen in view of all this? David cries out to the Lord and says, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that speaks great things, who have said with our tongue, We will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? What a boast. What a boast. You know, the Word of God is not just another book that's inspired amidst a great pantheon of inspired works of literature. And it just happens to be a little bit better than the rest. I've heard people talk about, there are men who actually believe that idea, but when you consult scripture, the chasm that exists between worldly wisdom and the wisdom of God from above is immeasurable. The difference between demonic wisdom and God's pure wisdom is in fact immeasurable, just as God's holiness is immeasurable. 
God's way and wisdom has been proven to be sure throughout the generations. Scriptures testifies to the, te- to the supremacy of his word. In Psalm 18 and verse 30, it says, As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried or tested. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. And everything that exists in this world and all the thoughts and ideas of men will pass away, and yet God's word endures forever. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God does what? It stands forever. And the psalmist delights in the surety and supremacy of God's word when he says, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. There we go again, enlightening the eyes. And this is a remarkable thing to consider, brethren. When God speaks, this is something that we were studying through years ago, uh, or a couple of years ago, in the book of Hebrews. God promises that he's going to do something. You know what's going to happen? He's going to do it. His word is sure. Men make promises all the time, and they oftentimes fall short of their promises. It's a part of being human. We don't, many times we try not to do that, but it just happens. But God, we learn regarding his own word, is characterized by this text in Isaiah 55 and verse 10, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God's word is effectual. It accomplishes everything that he ordains. And it's in that sense that we must understand that God's word is supreme. The words and promises of men, they so frequently fall short. But God's word perfectly, infallibly achieves his every end. You know, over the years, I have listened to preachers preach from the Bible, and oftentimes they're so quick to infuse their own thoughts and ideas into the text. And I, by the way, I'm not going to sit here and say that I've ever been above this. I'm being sanctified as a preacher. I'm trying to, I always tell people my basic goal as a preacher is to get out of the way. The thing I'm trying to do is just convey what Scripture says. And and for me to step up here and to infuse my own creative ideas and thoughts and so forth into the text violates the text. It takes that which is pure and corrupts it with my own imaginations, thoughts, and ideas. And you say, well, it's okay to blend a little bit of human wisdom into the Word of God. But if you were to be handed a glass of water with just a little teaspoon of poison, I'm pretty sure you wouldn't touch it, right? 
Oh, some would say, well, you know, and I think that the more dangerous concoction is, is when there's a little bit less than a full teaspoon, maybe just a, a 2% of a teaspoon or 3% of a teaspoon or 4%. It's just a little bit. That I think is even more dangerous because people can drink that, survive the experience and not be aware of the fact that they're slowly being poisoned. Whether you're quickly being poisoned or slowly being poisoned, it's all corruption. Because even a little leaven does what? Leavens the whole lump. Jesus warned the disciples about just that tiny little bit of leaven. Don't think or imagine for a moment that the infusion of human wisdom, even just a little bit, is somehow a good idea. The Pharisees nullified the commandments of God through their traditions, which they included with the word of God. Just a little bit here and there. God is not a syncretist. He doesn't need my help, and he doesn't need yours, and he doesn't need the help of any other preacher to to improve his already perfect and pure word. We can't make it better. So there's no sense in which we should try to tip the scales to improve that which is already perfect. But you know what, brethren, I, I say this. As, as a fellow member of the human race, we have to remember this. By nature, we're all crazy. Go read Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 3, where Solomon basically says that insanity dwells in the hearts of men. And that word in the Hebrew, translated as insanity, you know what it means? It means insanity. I got some bad news for you this morning. By nature, we're all crazy. Because we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, and we demote God from his high and lofty place in the, in the process. And we're like Adam, who thinks and imagines, as soon as he sins, that he can hide amidst the trees from the all-seeing and all-knowing God. If you want an example of insanity, look at Adam hiding from God, quote-unquote. And then seeing the shame of their sin, what do they do? They exhibit further insanity, sewing fig leaves together and making loin coverings as if to hide the shame of their sin, as if we can actually do that. Brethren, when we infuse human wisdom and logic and reasoning into Scripture, we take away from its purity by adding the corruption of human thinking. A Christian must guard against the vain thought of appending or supplementing God's wisdom with the faulty wisdom of the world. As many of you know, Spurgeon in his day was a member of a shrinking minority of men who were not ashamed of God in his word. And they couldn't keep quiet about it. In his final days, Spurgeon signed a confession of faith along with 30 other pastors of like conviction, defending Scripture's inerrancy and sufficiency along with the doctrines of grace, the work of Christ, his death and resurrection, the reality of hell, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This document that he signed was scorned by the masses, ridiculed by most churches as being an unnecessary thing, And unsurprisingly, Spurgeon 
became very lonely in the ministry by virtue of the fact that there were many who rejected him for his stand on Scripture. And Spurgeon said this in his Sword in the Trowel, rebuking the integrationists of his day. He says this, The idea of a progressive gospel seems to have fascinated many. To us, that notion is a sort of crossbreed between nonsense and blasphemy. After the gospel has been found effectual in the eternal salvation of untold multitudes, it seems rather late in the day to alter it. And since it is the revelation of the all-wise and unchanging God, it appears somewhat audacious to attempt its improvement. When we call up before our mind's eye the gentlemen who have set themselves this presumptuous task, we feel half inclined to laugh. The case is so much like the proposal of moles to improve the light of the sun. Their gigantic intellects are to hatch out the meanings of the infinite. We think we see them brooding over hidden truths to which they lend the aid of their superior genius to accomplish their development. Instead of revelation, we have philosophy today, falsely so-called. Instead of divine infallibility, we have surmises and larger hopes. The gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the same yesterday, today, and forever, is taught as the production of progress, a growth, a thing to be amended and corrected year by year. You know, what he faced in his day exists today as well. It always has been there. There are always going to be men who think and imagine that they can add to God's word and improve it. Not thinking through and not understanding that their corruptions of thought take the purity of God's word and make it into a poison concoction. The machinations and musings of men mixed with the word of God is a dangerous concoction because it contains that which is earthly, natural, and demonic, the wisdom from below. By the way, when James says earthly, natural, and demonic, those words are self-explanatory, really. The wisdom that is from below, he calls it earthly, meaning that which is earth-bound, that which, which comes from human depravity, that which complies with this world in order to keep up with human nature. When he talks about natural, that word sukike speaks of an individual who is preoccupied with the inner self. Again, when you talk to people and they talk about their truth, they're talking about the subjectivism of their life and how it is that truth is really defined not by the Almighty God, but by whatever they think is true. We are filled with that philosophy today in this world. And when he calls the wisdom from below demonic, well, do I really need to explain that? I mentioned recently the book by Rob Bell in which he tells people that if you die, you'll have a second chance. There's still hope for you to be sprung back into heaven through a purgatorial process of suffering Brethren, that is a demonic doctrine proffered by a man who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ. These are serious matters. 
for us to say we are Sovereign Grace Bible Church means that we have but one foundation. It has been established by the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And we're not adding to it. We're not taking away from it because we know the judgment of God is upon everyone who would add to or take away from the words of his revelation. If we could not say that God is holy and pure, then his promises would be nothing but an uncertainty. His commands would be full of contempt. His instructions would be fraught with hypocrisy. But we're so glad to know that our God is kadosh, 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 holy, holy, holy. And his word is holy and pure. And Jesus prays for us that we would be sanctified in his truth. He says, thy word is truth. Brethren, I'm always encouraged when I think about the children of God who give evidence to this very principle and idea of being rooted and grounded in God's word, of being the poema of God, the workmanship of God. Let me end with a a brief story about a young Swedish poet by the name of Carolina Sandell. She experienced a great number of trials and tragedies in her life the likes of which would send many into despair and self-destruction, and yet she persevered with great joy in her life. When she was only 26 years old, think about what she experienced. When she was only 26 years old, she went with her father, who was a Lutheran pastor, on a ferry boat to cross Lake Vatern in Sweden. At one moment, they were enjoying their time on the boat, enjoying the beauty of the day. And then suddenly the ship lurched forward and her father fell into the water. Very quickly he drowned and nobody could do anything about it. And she witnessed that moment, that tragedy. Years later, she married, but her only child died at birth. In 1892, she became ill with typhoid fever and died at the age of 70. You know, if you just read those facts, you would think to yourself, what a tragic and sad life. But God was making her a poema. She was his workmanship who is being sanctified by God's truth. And she was able to be an encouragement to many, many, many Christians. She wrote these words. Listen to these words. These beautiful, poetic words. Every day.
every day, the Lord himself is near me with a special mercy for each hour. All my cares he fain would bear and cheer me, he whose name is Counselor and Power. The protection of his child and treasure is a charge that on himself he laid. As thy days thy strength shall be in measure, this the pledge to me he made. When she says, as thy days, thy strength shall be in measure, she's quoting Deuteronomy 33 and verse 25, reminding us that each day we have, God gives us strength and mercy for each moment of life. The next verse says this, there is none like the God of Jeshurun, Israel, who rides the heavens to your help. That's our God. That's the promise that she was resting in. I mention her because this is yet one more example of God's work of grace in the life of a child of God, whereby he was making her a poema, his workmanship, created for good works, and that despite her tragedy, she would remember and know the principle, the truth of the fact that though the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And she stood on those promises. And therefore, she had the fullness of Christ's joy in her heart. This is what Jesus prays for you and for me. That we would be sanctified by the word of God. Now, did you recognize those words? Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. Day by day and with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here. Trusting in my Father's wise bestowment, I've no cause for worry or for fear. He whose heart is kind beyond all measure gives unto each day what he deems best. Lovingly, it's part of pain and pleasure, mingling toil with peace and rest. This is the hymn day by day. Verse 2 is the verse that I read. Let's stand together and let's sing this to the Lord. Hymn number 56. Hymn number 56 day by day. Let's sing it to the Lord. Day by day and with each passing moment Strength I find to meet my trials here. Trusting in my Father's wise bestowment, I've no cause for worry or for fear. He whose heart is kind beyond all measure, give 
gives unto each day what he deems best. Lovingly, it's part of pain and pleasure, mingling toil with peace and rest. Every day the Lord himself is near me, with a special mercy for each hour. All my cares he fain would bear and cheer me. He whose name is Counselor and Power, the protection of his child and treasure, is a charge that on himself he laid. As your days, your strength shall be in measure. This the pledge to me he Can you give me a, a D now? I think we're going to bring the last verse up. We can. Oh, that's okay. Help me then in every tribulation So to trust your promises, O Lord That I lose not faith's sweet consolation Offered me within your holy word Help me, Lord, when toil and trouble me Ever take as from a father's hand One by one the days and moments fleeting Till I reach the promised land Precious Heavenly Father, we long to reach that promised land of glory to be with you forever. Until that day comes, we pray, sanctify us in thy truth. Thy word is truth. Help us to see and understand, Lord, that your word is all-sufficient. And We've only touched on this subject here this morning, but as we continue to study this remarkable subject of the power and sufficiency of your word, we pray for grace to trust you for your promises more and more each and every day. Lord, bless us in this endeavor. Thank you that you are faithful, Lord, to sanctify your people. We give you all praise, glory, and honor in view of these things and do so in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace.